If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to put back up, pick back up in the, sermon, in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount this morning. With verse 9, we'll read verse 2 through 12 in just a few moments. You and I cannot get away from the awful truth that our culture has been inundated with conflict, with violence of, of every sort. On a weekly basis, this week it was Louisville, Kentucky. You read the reports. They've actually had several mass shootings this week. Last night in the little town of Dadeville, Alabama, a mile, excuse me, an hour from, from where I grew up, where I was born, where I went to high school, uh, another shooting at a birthday party, at least four, maybe six teenagers dead, 20 shot. But almost every week, some terrorist, some madman, deranged or disgruntled person decides to slaughter innocent co-workers, uh, school children and their teachers, mall shoppers, theater goers, those attending ball games, you name it. In the most recent year for which statistics are available, there were close to 16 violent crimes for every 1,000 Americans 12 and older, including 20, over 26,000 murders. Did you know that every 68 seconds someone in the United States is sexually assaulted? That there are 2.5 billion, excuse me, million burglaries annually. That's one every 15 seconds in our country. And over 821,000 aggravated assaults. And of course, post 9-11, we've been embroiled in this costly struggle to protect our nation from terrorists, both foreign and domestic. Environmental and political and abortion activists and other ideologically driven groups increasingly feel the use of violence is justified as an ends to their, as a means to their end, and thereby they threaten the peace of our nation. Far too often we see men and women who are sworn to uphold the peace of our country, whether serving in the military or in law enforcement, make the ultimate sacrifice as they serve us, defending and protecting us. And the battle rages on around our nation, from New York City and Boston to Las Vegas and San Bernardino to Nashville and Louisville and last night to this little town of 3,000 in Dadeville, Alabama. There, there are fewer and fewer locales that are unaffected by those who would threaten the peace of our nation. On the international stage, from Ukraine to the Middle East to Taiwan, from Africa to Central and South America to China and the Korean Peninsula, battles and wars and the threat of more wars rages on. I hear commentators and politicians talk about nuclear war like they're talking about going to a picnic on Sunday afternoon. Since 1945, there have been 285 distinct armed conflicts around the globe. Experts tell us there's only been 20, there have only been 26 days of peace since 1945. You think about that for a minute. Reminds me of that quote, Peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. And we have the continuation and even the spread of conflict, despite the fact that there are a lot of folks out there who are working hard, who have devoted their lives, in fact, to working for peace. But are they heard? Or is it that we hear and don't listen? Or, or is the problem more complex than that? 
Let's begin reading our text in verse 2 of chapter 5. I'd ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. And he, that is Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we contemplate the state of our nation, it's overwhelming for us. We trust in your sovereignty. We say thy will be done, and we pray for the grace to bear up under whatever comes our way as a nation, as a community, as a church, as a family, as an individual. And yet, Father, we do earnestly pray for peace. May it begin in our own hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Why are there so many wars? Why is there this ever-present conflict on the international stage? Why is our nation seemingly being ripped apart at the seams by the vastly divergent ideological philosophies that are out there? What if all this war and violence and struggle that rages around us is, is merely a reflection of the internal conflict in all of us? Is it even possible to make peace when we have no genuine peace ourselves? What is the matter with our nation, with our world? Well, I'm going to risk being accused of oversimplification here, but there's only one answer. Sin. Beginning with Cain and Abel, the root source of conflict and the resulting lack of peace is nothing more or less than sin. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, The explanation of all our troubles is human lust, greed, selfishness, self-centeredness. It is the cause of all the trouble and the discord, whether between individuals or between groups within a nation or between nations themselves. We cannot begin to understand the problems we face unless we accept the New Testament doctrine with regard to man and sin. The trouble, Scripture teaches us, is the heart of man. And until the heart of man is changed, we will never solve this problem of conflict and war. Nothing short of a, of a new heart, a new creation, a new man, a new woman can possibly deal with this issue. It's out of the heart that evil thoughts and jealousies and envy and adultery, malice, you name the sin, proceed. And when the hearts of men and women are thus aligned, there can be, there will be no peace. Jesus knew that. That's why He came. That's why he gave us the Beatitudes. When Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, we need to have a sense, first of all, of how difficult that was for his listeners to hear. 
The vast majority of his audience would have been Jews struggling under Roman oppression. We've covered this before, and you know this, but they wanted more than anything else to have the Romans run out of their homeland. No doubt some in the crowd were zealous. They were of the belief that Israel could only rid themselves of Roman rule through violent rebellion. And now this carpenter, this Jesus of Nazareth, was calling us to be what? To be peacemakers? But you and I are not so very different, are we? We struggle with the stuff all around us. We have our little battles. We find ourselves forced to deal with hostility from time to time. We run into rude people who test our patience. We watch the news and our anger rises as we see those whose ideology and lack of traditional morality threatens our nation and our peace. Just when we think it, it can't possibly get any worse, more evil, more threatening to the peace and welfare of our country and our communities, it does. We may even find ourselves in explosive situations on occasion that have the potential to blow up in our faces. I was playing golf a couple of weeks ago. We got to the 16th hole on Columbia, uh, Columbia Points Golf Course. That, some of you will know where I'm talking about. Most of you won't. But about, we were ready to tee off, and about 150 yards up on the right-hand side of the fairway, there was a group of people. We couldn't tell. They were so far away what was going on. But one person was laying on the ground. We thought maybe they got hit by a golf ball. Well, I'm an employee out there. I work here and there. And uh, there's another employee that was riding in the cart with me, so we said, let's go out there and check on them, make sure that they're not injured. By the time we got out there, the individual on the ground stood up, and we realized when we got there that this was five 13-, 14-year-old boys, all dressed in black. Some of them had their little scooters they liked to ride, and they were, they were cutting across the golf course, which is common. It's a shortcut from one side to the other, obviously. So we checked, we to make sure you guys weren't hurt, and they got up and, and, and just started cussing at us, screaming the, the vilest language you've, you've heard. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe it, and threatening us with violence. We said, you know, this is, this is private property. You're, you really need to just move on off the course. You could get hit with a golf ball out here and get seriously injured. And they just, they said, just continued to just use this, this, this vile language and to threaten to, to beat us up. I was with another 60-something-year-old, and I had a 93-year-old man with me playing golf. And so uh, we, we said, you know what, we're going back. We turned around, drove back to the tee, and the two smart ones of the five, I call them the two smart ones because they walked on off the course. The other three followed us to the tee and continued to cuss us. It's 13, 14-year-old little boys, the vilest language you've ever heard, and threatened them to fight us. Well, of course, at that point, the thing to me to do was call 911, and I did. And about that time, the four guys, younger guys, like they're in their 30s, were behind us in a group. They knew us. They came over the hill with their golf clubs in their hand, and the little boys scattered. You know, with all that, and I'll just say this before I go on. More than anything, I was saddened. Saddened that when I was a kid, I would have never talked to an adult like that. I wouldn't use that language with anybody. It was so vile, but I would never have spoken to an adult like those kids talked to us, and it just saddened me. These kids didn't want peace. And we run into folks all the time who don't want to get along. They're looking for trouble. They're looking for a fight. And we have to admit, there's a part of us, some of us more than others perhaps, there's a part of us for whom the natural man is ready to get it on in those situations, to jump in with both feet and to become like them. When someone barks at us, the natural man in us, 
has the tendency to want to bark back. We've heard it all said before, don't get mad, get even. But these types of responses, we know this, they only serve to, to spiral the situation out of control. So let me ask you this morning, church family, are you a peacemaker or are you a troublemaker? It's an important question because, you see, we've been made right with God. You know, we've surrendered our lives to God and the conflict is over. We have peace with God. Say, I have peace with God. Amen. And because we have peace with God, we're called to do His work of peacemaking. The call Jesus issues to us is a call to be peacemakers. It's a call to the ministry of agents of reconciliation. And as we become agents of reconciliation, we actually enter into the very minister of our Savior. That's the challenge. That's the call we face as His followers. And this morning, we need to think about the implications of what Jesus is saying to us here. It's clear from what Jesus says here that we all need peace. As we reflect on what's going around in the world and consider those statistics that I shared with you earlier, there can be little argument that it's true. We need peace in our world, our country, our community, our church, you and me. We all need, we all desire peace. But there's some unique characteristics about peace, the peace of which Jesus speaks, that we need to understand. We need to understand both what it is and what it is not. When Jesus speaks of peace, He's not simply referring to the absence of conflict. You've heard it said before, but listen, peace is not this sort of vacuum in which we can hope to live, just cut ourselves off from any kind of outside influence. And, you know, we might be able to find some semblance of peace in that kind of environment, but, of course, graveyards are peaceful places too. Peace is not a void. And neither is peace simply agreeing to agree. Being a peacemaker does not mean some kind of laid-back, easygoing individual. It doesn't mean the sort of person who just tries to avoid trouble at any cost. The true peacemaker is not an appeaser. Hear me clearly there. Uh, appeasement may delay the conflict. See Neville Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler in World War II. But often it means the, the appeasing person, what they're doing is, is unjust and un, unrighteous in its own regard in this effort to avoid conflict. So avoiding conflict, avoiding war does not mean there will be peace because it does not solve that root problem. Being a peacemaker does not mean peace at any price. We can't find the kind of peace of which Jesus speaks through the compromise of truth and righteousness. If we compromise the key issues of life that make life meaningful and valuable, the result is not peace, even if the compromise is for the sake of peace. If peace at any price is the slogan of the day, true peace is precisely what you do not get. Peace sought after in that manner will only lead eventually to other conflicts, maybe worse than the ones we're seeking to avoid now. So then peace is not the absence of something. Rather, it is the presence of something. True peace is the presence of righteousness. Peace is a, a positive result of people submitting to the authority and the righteousness of God. It's facing truth as revealed in Scripture and yielding to it. The kind of peace a lot of folks more than we imagine are seeking, they will not be found without yielding 
to righteousness. But there's a problem, as I stated earlier. The problem is the sin in our lives, sin which ultimately breeds conflict in our own hearts. And until we take care of that sin problem, we will never experience true peace. We read in James chapter 3, verse 17, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving. Purity, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, is a precursor to peace. To be a true peacemaker, one must possess a pure heart. And once again, we see how the Beatitudes build on one another. Beloved, we, we can't and won't find peace by simply laying down our guns. Peace comes as folks own up to the kind of immoral attitudes and cruel actions that are responsible for causing the conflict in the first place. A person whose heart is filled with envy and jealousy and the like has no chance of being a peacemaker. We can't ever hope to experience any measure of true and lasting peace unless we're willing to do something about changing the sin in our own hearts, our own selfish attitudes, and submitting ourselves to the righteousness of God. The psalmist expresses it this way, Unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. All this means that peace comes as a result of of a conflict of sort. Hear me out on this. Meaning we have to struggle with our own selfishness, with our own sinfulness, and come to the place where we can make this radical commitment to Jesus Christ before we can experience peace. I I agree with theologians who say this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, do not think that I have come to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The the message of Jesus as reflected in the Sermon on the Mount in every respect is a message of peace. Yet it calls those who follow him to make this radical commitment, this radical decision that in a sense separates us from the world. Making the gospel a message of peace that effectively creates a division between those who believe the message and those who do not believe the message. That's part of what it means to be holy. The set-apart one, set-apart for a purpose. Part of what it means to be the ecclesia, the called-out ones, called out from the world. To be those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul writes, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Jesus tells us, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. Saying yes to the truth of Jesus Christ is the path to peace. But of course, there are many, there have always been many who will stand in the opposition, stand in opposition to that truth. The truth of Jesus Christ is like a sword. And this sword always has and always will pierce everyone and anyone who struggles against it. You see, God is not interested in telling us what we want to hear. He's interested in dealing with the things in our lives that destroy us. And this is seldom a peaceful procedure, but it ends with a peace that no one can take away. We all need, and we all in our heart of hearts, desire that kind of peace. So we're called to desire peace. We're also called to be peacemakers. Just as 
Jesus' words in this beatitude imply that we need that peace. We, it implies that we must make peace. In other words, we're to be peacemakers. In the first place, we need to look as our own, at our own lives. I'll just reiterate here. We've already covered this ground, but we've got to understand first and foremost that, that God is the source of peace. It's through Christ and Jesus Christ alone that we can experience real peace. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14 these words, But now you have been united excuse me, there you go, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in His own body on the cross He broke, broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And in his letter to the church in Colossae, Paul writes, For God in all His fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through Him to reconcile everything to Himself, He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. It's abundantly clear, isn't it, that, that from the Bible, that the only way to achieve true, true and lasting peace is through relationship with Jesus Christ. Before we can share bread with another beggar, we've got to know where the bread's at. True peace is found only in relationship with Jesus Christ. And then we must purposefully and enthusiastically begin making peace. This is what it means to be a peacemaker. To make peace, we got to do something to bring others into relationship with Jesus Christ that can bring them peace. Listen to Paul as he writes to the church in Corinth and to us. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now here it is plain and simple. We present the potential and of genuine and lasting peace by showing others the way to Jesus Christ. Now I want you to listen as Paul concludes his thoughts on, from that passage we just read. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. But we are ambassadors for Christ in this ministry of reconciliation. It's our task to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to as many people as we possibly can. An amazing thing, an amazing thing occurs when this happens. As we find, as folks find their own peace with God, they become more and more eager to make peace with others, some of with whom they've had violent disagreement in the past. When the conflict in our own hearts is resolved, you see, we begin to be able to resolve the conflict that exists between us and others. What I'm saying, church family, listen carefully, is that when God is in control, the stage is set for real peace to break out in our midst. That's because the key to making peace is Christ. In any interpersonal conflict, the key is the participant's willingness to submit to a commonly accepted authority. Listen to me, church family. If, if people are willing to be yoked together under the lordship of Jesus Christ, there is real potential for conflict to be resolved. Peace has a chance to reign. Paul writes, in Romans 12, verse 18, If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In our 
faith, family, in our community, in our church, this requires an active effort to understand one another, to, to truly listen to one another. That means as men and women of faith, we've got to be willing to wade through the hard stuff, the, the conflicts and the disagreements to strengthen our relationships. Do you hear me on that, church family? Say, say we hear you. Not to say that, that we'd all compromise our core beliefs, as we said earlier, but rather that we actually begin to live out our core beliefs more faithfully. After all, how can we live out what it means to be a peacemaker if we're not willing to invite people in to reach out to those with differing preferences and personalities and to have the hard conversations all in an effort to be reconciled with our brother, our sister, with our neighbor. In fact, our willingness to walk lovingly through conflict in a relationship in the search for peace actually, listen now, actually says everything about how much we value that relationship. We won't work on it if we don't value it. We won't care. Relationships we value have no place for sweeping stuff under the rug, beloved. I'm not saying there aren't any risks involved. Being a peacemaker can be risky business. It can be a real struggle. Both parties may resent our peacemaking efforts, maybe even especially when we're one of the parties in the conflict. There's a chance of damaging, even losing our relationship with those we're attempting to help. Jesus never said it would be an easy experience. He said it would be a blessed one. So we need, we, we need peace. We're called to bring peace, and we're called to represent the Prince of Peace. We're called to represent the Prince of Peace. Jesus' statement here also implies that we make peace because we represent the Prince of Peace. In other words, we're, su we're supposed to become peacemakers because we're supposed to be like our Father. Peacemaking is a godlike work. When this verse says that peacemakers should be called the sons of God, and I would insert daughters there too, the point that is being made as we do the work of God we reflect the image of God. Let me illustrate it like this. When someone says to a son or a daughter, I see your father in you. You know, I see your mother in you. They're talking about an inherited image. Beloved, the same is true for us as Christians. We inherit the image of our Heavenly Father. Being born again, we now take on the very nature of of God as His new creations. By His Spirit, Jesus lives in us and His character and His personality ought then to be reflected in our lives. For we are in the process of becoming like Christ. And we all with unveiled face, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being, our lives are being made brighter and more beautiful as we attain this image of our Father. So, so then as peacemakers, our view of the world is entirely different from the world around us. Foremost among the differences is, is that our chief concern is the glory of God. For we follow our Savior, and that was His only concern. 
He was even willing to humble himself and to suffer injustice and endure the cruelty of death on the cross to glorify his Father and bring the, about the ultimate peace. And so you and I must be willing to set aside self-interest and self-concern for the sake of glorifying God. Our suffering, the way we endure our suffering, can even lead to Him being glorified. And so, just as our Savior suffered, we must be willing to suffer. It's because our actions reflect the nature of God that we're called sons and daughters of God. That's our testimony before God and before the world. To be a peacemaker is to be like God. To be a peacemaker is to be like Christ, who's called the Prince of Peace. And we know what He did as the Prince of Peace. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul tells us we must have this mind among ourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, some have asked whether we would be called sons and daughters of God by other people or by God Himself. I suggest to you that maybe it's both. People seeing our godlike work in peacemaking say, well, that, that person must be a child of God. And of course, God calls us His children as well. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, right? Or children of God. And if children, then heirs. That's the reward for being a peacemaker. So, beloved, are you a person who seeks to bring peace? Or do you always seem to find yourself in conflict? Do you seek to point people to the Prince of Peace? I want to urge you to become a, an agent of reconciliation. Take seriously the call to be an ambassador for Christ in that arena. There's a place as we close where that search for peace begins and ends. Where answering the call to become His child and become an agent of reconciliation begins. The place where the price that we could not pay for our sins was paid by the only one who could pay it. That place where the wrath of God that we deserved, not the peace of God, but the wrath of God, was received by the, by the only one who did not deserve any of that wrath. The place where the blood of the perfect, sinless sacrifice bought for you and me the grace that we could not hope to earn in ourselves and certainly didn't deserve. And that place, you know it, is the cross. Paul, in writing to the church at Colossae and to Richland Baptist Church, says of our Lord and Savior, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Church family, listen carefully. Christ gave Himself that you and I might find peace with our Father. Christ died on the cross that we might find peace within ourselves. And listen, church family. Christ shed His precious blood that we might make peace with one another. 
Consider that amazing statement in Ephesians 2, verses 14 and 15. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by establishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create Himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Beloved, that's not just a good word for the Jews and Gentiles of the first century church. That's a good word for Richland Baptist Church today. It's all right there. May we never forget that to be a peacemaker is to be like Jesus. He didn't claim his rights. He didn't claim his entitlements. He didn't fall back on his deity or his eternality. No, he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Why? Because as he endured that cruelty, you were on his mind. I was on his mind. And you and I are called to have the same mind which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul writing in Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 says, Do not do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. That's what Scripture teaches us, beloved. We follow Jesus. We realize and remember what He did so that we could have peace with God the Father. And now we do everything that we can to help make that potentially possible for everyone else, to share that good news with everyone. We forget ourselves. We deprioritize what we see as our rights or our entitlements. And we humble ourselves, and then we follow in the steps of the one who knew no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The keys to peace are really, really relatively simple. Peace with God and peace with one another. May, may God grant us the grace to see this glorious truth and make us every day more like our Savior, the Prince of Peace, and more like the God of Peace. I want to close today by sharing one of the, my favorite poems with you, a poem that takes us undeserving sinners, though we be, to the foot of the cross and reminds us of the peace that was purchased for us there. It's called, I See the Crowd in Pilate's Hall by Horatius Boner. I see the crowd in Pilate's Hall. Their furious cries I hear. Their shouts of crucify appall. Their curses fill mine ear. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in the din of voices rude, I recognize my own. I see the scourgers rend the flesh of God's beloved Son. And as they smite, I feel afresh that I of them am one. Around the cross, the throng I see that mock the sufferers groan, yet still my voice it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Twas I that shed that sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Yet not the less thy blood avails to cleanse me from my sin, and not the less that cross prevails. To give me peace within. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we recognize full well that to which your word calls us. We're familiar with the text we looked over today. We know that to which you call us. We confess that we often fail and fail miserably in our efforts to be peacemakers. We're so thankful, Lord, that we know your son Jesus and we can have peace within. We're thankful for your spirit that works in our lives, conforming us to the image of your son Jesus Christ and how that peace has grown over the years that we've known your son. We confess, Father, that we have failed to take that message of peace to as many people as we could. And, Father, we are so thankful for those who are faithfully in the field doing that work on our behalf. Encourage us by the power of your Holy Spirit working within us in the hours and days and weeks to come to just be more discerning for opportunities we might have to talk to someone about the Prince of Peace. Father, we also confess that in our families, in our communities, and in in this very church, we have been been guilty from time to time of, of being disagreeable and, and not being one who sought peace. Father, we, we recognize that, that that's what your son died for. You, you, your son shed his blood that we might have peace in our midst, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, and, and in our churches. So, Father, we commit to strive to that end take up the mantle of the calling to be agents of reconciliation. Thank you, Father, for the chance to gather together today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.